Sorry, apologize. Sorry, I didn't stall long enough, apparently. There we go. <laughs> Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea had grown more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thank you very much, Becca. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to what you have for us today. Speak to us. Help us not to simply be hearers of your word, but be doers of your word. Make us in, Lord God, Lord God, make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, and do this for your own name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, the book of Jonah, you know, it is the, uh, it's the greatest reverse fish story. Have you ever heard this? You know, what did the, uh, what did the one-armed fisherman say? I caught a fish this big. <laughs> this is kind of the reverse, because I imagine after this great fish swallowed Noah, spit him back out. You know, he was going over to his fish buddies. You know, I've seen the incredible Mr. Limpet. I know how it works. And uh, he's talking to him. He's like, I caught a human this big. Yeah, I thought that was funny. But (laughs) our next series here at Faith Church is the book of Jonah. 
For at least the next four weeks, we'll be diving into the book and finding out what it means for us today. As the song goes, Jonah was a prophet. Oh, oh, but he never really got it. Sad, but true. Sometimes we read about these guys in scripture, prophets, and we think, good for them, but what about me? It sort of makes them feel unrelatable. We see prophets, pastors, leaders of nations as people who have a call of God on their life. But dear friend, you have a call of God on your life and it's so much the same as Jonah, so much the same as mine. At the very core of us, we are called, we are called to love God and enjoy him forever. Called to abide in him and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And all of us who are believers, we are called to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the outermost ends of the earth. All of us, we have this call on our life. This calling is more important than a king or a commander. Joe Biden, he may make decisions that affect millions, but God may use you to affect the eternity of many. I remember there was this saying, my, uh, my, my professor in college, Brother Jones, he was an older guy, and uh, he always said this saying, why would you want to be a king when God's called you to be a pastor? All of us have a call of God on our life, though, as a priesthood of believers, no matter what you call yourselves. All of us have this call. And Romans eleven twenty nine says, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That's a, that's a verse that I think a lot of us really kind of wouldn't like because it means it doesn't matter what we think or what we accept or what we are okay with. It's irrevocable. Many Christians don't make much of this call as if there were more important things that really we need to look at other things, philosophies or other religions or whatever as a way of better benefiting humans. Some will outright reject this calling, believing that it's part of some outdated colonial mindset both of which I wonder their actual heart being in connection with God. C.H. Spurgeon said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if you have no concern for the lost, you might yourself be very much lost. The fact of the matter is, it's not up for our choosing, accepting, or denying. It's about obedience versus disobedience. That was Jonah. He was given the call and he decided, no. God didn't say it wasn't an either or. It wasn't, um, this is your mission. Should you choose to accept it? This is your mission. You'll accept it, <laughs> period. So the question becomes, if this call is irrevocable and it's a matter of obedience versus disobedience, then we have to ask ourselves, how am I doing? And this isn't a rhetorical question. It's a question that has an answer. How am I legitimately doing? When was the last time I talked to somebody about the Lord who didn't know anything about God? When was the last time that I saw something in the scripture I should be doing and I'm not doing it? I'm kind of running away like Jonah or I feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and I didn't do that. How are we doing? One of the functions of the scripture is a mirror for us so that we can see how we are doing. Sometimes when we read the scripture, we like to cast ourselves as the hero. The great thing about the, the unique thing about the book of Noah, who in the world is the hero? The title character doesn't do super well. You know, there's something significant about the book of Jonah is that there's nobody else around. Nobody else is recording this. This story has to come from Jonah himself. And he doesn't paint himself as the hero. That's an evidence of a changed heart. I'll get more into that into chapter four in four weeks. Well, I have this call from, uh, for us. 
Jonah's call was to go to Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh is a very old city. It's a very large city. It's a city of sin. It's a city. It's a city of violence. It's an old city. Nineveh is one of the first cities after the flood. It's a, once again, very old city. It probably predates the Assyrian Empire, whose capital Nineveh was. Guess who the founder of this ancient city was of Nineveh? It was our buddy Nimrod. Probably those of you who were last week, it's like, okay, that makes a lot of sense as we go forward here when we think about another city he founded, which was Babel. Um, Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. We tend to think of the good old days, but if we're honest, if we go far enough back, they were the bad old days. In fact, you go far enough back, it's Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. We tend to have these rose-colored glasses. I think because we have these rose-colored glasses, glasses of our history, we tend to think, well, our, our time right now, it's irredeemable, and God wants nothing to do with us. There was a time in American history that was more licentious than even ours today. During the Civil War, for instance, there were massive riots in New York which they strung people up to lampposts and burned them alive. I mean, it was horrific. But God sent revival. God can send revival today. Our hope is still that Christ would send revival and bring us back to repentance as this old city Nineveh was called to repentance. It's a large city. According to God, in this book of Jonah, um, the city had more than 120,000 people and many animals. It's a large city. It was the capital and the seat of the Assyrian Empire, the first real superpower in antiquity. With a city like Nineveh, it's no wonder. If you have enough people, you just throw people into the battle until you win. They actually weren't great military in military. They just had a lot of people and were able to conquer vast swaths of areas. Um, in their time, the Assyrian Empire will conquer more of the known world, more than any before their time. It was also a city of violence. Nineveh, by extension, the Assyrian Empire, will be so brutal to their enemies that empires like Babylon, Persia, and Rome itself will seem merciful and kind. In fact, we have no clue today what real war is like. In Nahum chapter 3, is a, has a woe against Nineveh. Let me read it to you. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, P-R-E-Y. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whoring of the prostitute, great, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whoring and people with her charms. It is also a city of sin. It is a city of sin. What is said of them is said of Sodom and Gomorrah before them. We make a lot because we get a glimpse of the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah, of what they were trying to do to two angels, to, to three angels. But Nineveh, the very, very similar things are said of Nineveh, that their, that their wickedness had gone up before the Lord. The most comforting words you will ever hear from God is that he sees you and he knows you. Conversely, the least comforting things he can say to you is, I know what you're doing and it turns my stomach. 
in Isaiah, the people in Isaiah, they were crying out to God, why don't you hear us? Why don't you see our sacrifices? Why don't you speak to us? And God said, I see you and I see you better than you think I do. I see what you do to the people who labor for you. I see what you do to your children. So maybe you shouldn't ask, hear, let us hear from you. And God then brings judgment. Jonah is mentioned in the Bible more times than the book that bears his name. By the, by the way, after this book was written um, by him, this book was either written by him or told by him. No one else is here. The fish doesn't swallow two guys, just one. This is Jonah's story. So what about Jonah? Jonah, we actually first encounter Jonah in, first, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 25. He is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time, Israel was a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom, which is also called Ephraim in your Bibles, their, their capital was Sumeria. And you'll remember Sumeria when we get into the New Testament. They're not well liked. And we have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, their capital being Jerusalem. The northern kingdom of Israel um, with Sumeria, they are conquered by the Assyrian uh, Empire later on here. But before that happens, during the reign of Jeroboam II, we have, uh, we have um, Jonah first mentioned. He restored the border of Israel, speaking of Jeroboam II, from Leobhavrath, I should have checked out the, the, how to say that name before this, as far as the Sea of Arabath, and according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by, the, by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amrati, the prophet who was from Gath. This lets us know that, jo, that Jonah's time was around 786 to 746 BC. I know we have some of the younger kids in this. When we talk about BC before Christ, it counts, instead of counting up, it counts down. So your life, instead of being like born in 1983 and now it's 2020, it'd be like the exact opposite. Born in 2020, now it's 1983. It's how the, how the terms go. Israel is conquered by the very people Jonah will be preaching to in 732 BC. So that is a difference of 14 years. Do we have a 14-year-old here? Is Jeb now like 16 and he doesn't count? We have no 14-year-olds? Oh, man. Oh, all right. We have Gwen and Johnny. So by the time they were, if they were born until today, destruction of a whole nation by the people Jonah is going to be preaching to. The New Testament is, Jonah is mentioned in the New Testament in several of the Gospels by Jesus himself. Jesus would be um, doing miracles. They would attribute them to Beelzebub. And then they had the goal, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the goal to ask Jesus, what sign will you give us that you're the Messiah? He'd just been healing the sick, raising the dead, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, which is something only the Messiah would do is give sight to the blind. These are proofs. And, they, and then they, they say, he's just doing that by Beelzebub. And they're like, what sign will you give us? Jesus' response is, only a crooked and depraved generation asks for a sign. It makes you somewhat worried about our own generation, right? That we're always looking to the next thing, right? That fame is so transitory. It's what's the next thing? What's the next thing? TikTok, no, Twitter, all these things. But anyway, he says, a crooked and depraved generation looks for a sign, but none will be given but the sign of Jonah, who is in the belly of the whale for three nights and three days speaking of himself being the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. 
Um, Jonah was a prophet from sinners to sinners. Jonah was a prophet during the time of the northern kingdom of Israel. This kingdom does not have one righteous king, and they never do away with the idols that they worship. Jonah, Jonah in one mention during that period in the book of Kings, gives one good prophecy. He gives one good prophecy, and that's all we know of him, is he gave a good prophecy. Now, what's interesting about it, if you continue reading on in Kings, another prophet comes in and tells him, tells the king, now you're going to lose all that because you're unfaithful to the Lord your God. Um, so Jonah, his track record, it's good. He has a good prophecy. Now, to understand how prophets prophesied in the Old Testament, I'm going to explain it for you, break it down for a second. They had two ways of delivering their prophecies. These were the, these were the, uh, the bowls of the prophecy, and it would either be um, wheel or woe. Wheel or woe. We understand woe is kind of a term we even have today. It means a curse. Jesus operated as a prophet because he would speak woe to cities. He would speak woe to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he curses them seven times. And he says woe, not to sound all poetic, but it is actually a prophet's language to say woe. The other one was wheel, and that is blessing. When Jesus gives the Beatitudes, he is acting as a prophet because he is giving wheel prophecies. And most prophecies are not so much what will happen in the future, but what God wants you to do now. So Jesus operates as prophet in his earthly ministry. Jonah has one prophecy uh, credited to his name in the scripture. And so far before we get to the book of Jonah, and it is a wheel prophecy of blessing to a disobedient nation who will end up being conquered, who don't, who do not repent. Spoiler alert, he gives a woe prophecy to, to Nineveh, a nation that does repent. Blessings and cursings are not as cut and dry as sometimes we think they are. There are, in fact, hardships in our life that are a result of living in a sinful world. And there are those, and there are hardships in our life that are consequences of being stupid and making stupid decisions. I saw a meme the other day, I thought about putting it up here, but I didn't, um, where it said, you know, everything happens for a reason, and sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and you make bad decisions. And it was this sleeping lion, and behind the sleeping lion was a monkey with a stick about to, about to knock him one. Then there are things that happen in your life that are for your good, but they feel hard at the time. Sometimes these things are literally brought on by God for your betterment. There is some hardship that God permits, and some he even causes so that we may become godlier in our life. There is this story about Alexander the Great. He was walking around inspecting his men. He came across a soldier of his who is sleeping on guard duty. Now, many people dispute this story because most of the time, if you were asleep on guard duty, they didn't even bother waking you up. They just killed you on the spot because, I mean, you, you were letting the enemy come in. So he sees this guy sleeping. He wakes him up and he asks him, what's your name, young man? He says, my name's Alexander. This is Alexander the Great speaking to Alexander the not-so-great. So he tells him, change your conduct or change your name. Every time I see somebody with the name Jason who does something stupid, I want to say the same thing to them. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, the thing with Jonah is he's forgotten himself. There used to be an old term we had 
Um, you, you'll see this in old movies. You'll see this in old books. And somebody will do something stupid, act idiotic, and the person will say, sir, you forget yourself. I like that term. We should bring that back. It's like a great way of saying you're acting like an idiot, but I don't think you're an idiot. You're just acting like an idiot right now. You've forgotten who you are. That's the problem. You think you're an idiot right now, but you're not. Sir, you forgot yourself. When I think of Jonah, when we go through chapter one, our big takeaway here is that Jonah has forgotten himself. In fact, it takes his shipmates, his pagan, heathen, godless shipmates in verse eight to bring him back to himself. In verse eight, they ask him a series of questions. Verse eight, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So what has he forgotten? He's forgotten what he does. He's forgotten who he is and he's forgotten who he belongs to. So as we look in chapter one, that's what we're breaking it into is him forgetting who he is. I mean, what he does, who he is and who he belongs to. Let me first start out here. All of us have different things that we're associated with. Paul the apostle, we know him as much of an apostle, but you know what he did for money? He built tents. His full-time occupation wasn't an apostle. In fact, he refused money at many points, time, time and places. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, we find out he was a tent maker. But he wasn't a tent maker. Tent making was something he did on the side. His true heart is that he was an apostle. And it's the same with you, everybody here. If you are a believer, you are a minister of the gospel. You do things like, you do things like being a clerk at some place, being a factory worker, a doctor, a farmer, an electrician, an engineer. You do that on the side, your principal occupation. What do you do? What's your occupation? Like they asked Jonah, you are a minister of the gospel. That's what you do. You know, I've met, I've had many jobs in my life. I wasn't born a pastor. Um, and uh, I think every pastor actually should have a secular job. Like a secular job apart from high school, a secular job, you need to pay the bills. Because when I tell you to be a bold witness for Christ, I want you to understand, I know the risks. Because there was times in my life, my first real job out of college was at a treatment facility. And I remember these boys would go to a sweat lodge. If you're not familiar with the Native American religion of the Sioux Indians, a sweat lodge is where you have well, what really happens is hallucinations, but they believe they're communicating with spirits. And we know those spirits are not of God. So the boys would ask me, why don't you go into the sweat lodge, Jason? And I told them, or Mr. Fisher, or whatever they called me at the time, I can't remember. Um, and, I, and I told them, because it's filled with demons, because my God doesn't share me with anybody else, and because there's nothing in there that will benefit your life. Let me tell you something. If those kids wanted to, they could have made big trouble for me, and I could have gotten fired on the spot. And I had to make the decision, am I going to obey God, or am I going to be more concerned with what pays my bills? That would have been a hard time for me, because at the time, I was dating somebody, and I was wanting to propose marriage, and it turns out that kind of costs some money, you know, to get a ring and stuff. I remember working at Target, and Target has a interesting ideas and interesting ideologies that I don't subscribe to. So we'd be working together. I'd be working with other people. And I was, I remember, you know, I, I was a bold witness for the Lord, according, 
according to God's favor, according to God's, the Holy Spirit's strength. I was, I, I witnessed day in, day out, knowing at any point in time, somebody could make trouble for me, even though it was cordial conversations. You know how people can be sometimes if they feel offended, they can then say, Jason was harassing me. He's throwing his religion down my throat. So I have a number of jobs, but at every job I knew this. I'm just doing this on the side because my true job is to get many, as many of these people to heaven as I possibly can. And actually, that's not even my job. My only job actually is just to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And then I let the Holy Spirit do the work. Nineveh and Sodom. In verse 1, Jonah is called to travel to Nineveh because their sin um, has come up before the Lord. Sounds a lot like what the Lord said of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if, it, if what they have done is as bad as, they, as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This message that God gives Jonah is not a message of hope, but of condemnation. You know, in verse 3, let me read the very first part here, but Jonah. You know, it starts with, but Jonah, but Jonah ran away. You know, opinions and perspectives and inclinations, they're like butts. Everybody has one, and Jonah had a big butt. I would tell that coworker, fellow student, neighbor about Jesus, but I might lose my job. I might lose my friends. One of the best words we see in Scripture concerning God is, but God, while we were sinners, but God. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God. One of the words that God does not want to hear from us, though, is, but I. I'd follow you, Jesus, but I've got some ox that I need to, I need to try out. I'd follow you, Jesus, but I have to do this. Well, Jesus, I would be a witness for you in my workplace, but I don't want to get fired. I'd be a witness for you, but I don't want to lose my Facebook account. We could go on and on and on, right? When it comes to Jonah, Jonah seems to have, have a big butt in here. He wants to be a prophet, but only wants to give good news to his own people. Jonah isn't who I would have chosen to be an international missionary prophet. The guy actually seems pretty racist once we get right down to it. He literally wanted this entire city to go to hell. But God doesn't ask my opinion, luckily, when it comes to the vessels he decides to use. When it comes to his travels, my last slide on here, I have a map for everybody, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, my last slide. All right, hopefully you can see this. Jonah is about 500 miles away from Nineveh. He is a considerably far, much further distance from what is modern-day Tarshish, I mean, modern-day Spain and Portugal, but he's like, he just wants to go anywhere but where he's supposed to go. It's kind of like the kid who's like, as soon as they graduate, they're like, I'm going to Poland, or I'm going to Timbuktu. I just want out of this place. He just wants to go anywhere that's not Nineveh. Nineveh is modern-day Iraq. Iraq is an interesting country because it actually en envelops many different biblical cities, including Babylon, um, but also Iraq. And he does not want to go to Nineveh. He runs from the Lord. Now, you know what a problem is? We tend to read our own thoughts and opinions into the scripture. He was not going because he was afraid. Because my first inclination, why would somebody want to run the other way when God tells you to go to a 
murderous place. Well, I'd be afraid I'd get killed. That's not his reason. Now, his reason is that if he preaches, they might repent. We'll get into that in our third week, right? Uh, third week. But I wanted to show you how far, to what length, Jonah was willing to travel on the sea, which is a dangerous thing to do, to go to, to flee from the word of God. God, in verse, in verse 4, brings the storm. Who brings the storm? Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Is it a result of living in a fallen world? Nope, that's not what the scripture says. Um, there are storms like that in the, in the Bible, but this is not one of them. Was it Satan and God just allowed it to happen? That's not what it says. God sends the storm. In fact, he is the only one with the power and the right to send the wind and the waves. After all, they only know his name. Jonah in verses 5, we have here, he is some... In verse 5, he uh, goes to the lower chambers and falls into a deep sleep. We are tempted to make an analogy between Noah and Jesus here because both of them fall asleep in the lower parts of the boat when there's a great storm. But they fall asleep for two different reasons. I think this says a lot for us too when it comes to the way we act when there's a storm outside. Like right now, all the stuff that's happening in the world. See, we can do one of two things. We can have rest which is with Jesus, which is a confidence that he's okay. Until it's his time, all of the armies in, in heaven and earth couldn't touch him until it was his time. So he had a confidence, he had a trust in the sovereignty of God that the storm would not kill him so he could sleep in it because it'll be fine. Or you can have a, a, a reaction like Jonah. Jonah does not fall asleep because he's, he's content. He knows everything's going to be okay. As many commentators, and one specifically, John MacArthur points out, this is, and in tradition, this is the actions of somebody who is overwhelmed with fear. He's passing out. He's fainting. Which really kind of fits well when you consider Jonah kind of comes from a very kind of rich background. You know, has, he can get travel all the way to Tarsus. In fact, there's certain rabbinic traditions that believe he bought the boat and everything. Um, he falls asleep because of panic. I see that much more than the other. People who are just panicked by fear into doing absolutely nothing. When it comes to our, our responsibility to the call that God has given us, many people are in that boat and not in the boat with Christ. They're in the boat where they are fainting in fear as opposed to resting in the Sabbath rest of our Lord. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, am I allowing fear to steal away from me what God wants to do in my life? Prayer works. The captain wakes Jonah up and he tells him to start praying. This might seem out of place until you consider the pagan mindset. It was a kind of, it's kind of like many people's mindset today. Your God is good for you. Your, my God is good for me as long as there's sincerity. Nope, because there is only one God, one maker of heaven and earth, and his name is the Lord. This is what Jonah does and this is his occupation this is what he has forgotten that he is a prophet of the most high god and it takes pagan godless heathens on a boat to remind him this is what you do let's go on here who you are verse 8 they ask him that question they they roll lots and they ask him a series of questions about who he is one of my favorite musicals and birthday boy Jeb watched this this last week is Les Mis, Les Miserables. I can't, I can't pronounce it in French. 
It's one of my favorite ones. And there's this point where Jean Valjean, the main character, who is a fugitive, um, he has now remade his life and he's still wanted. And he finds out somebody else is about to suffer his penalty, go to slavery in the state. And he has to decide, am I going to step in and say, that's not the person, I'm the, I'm the person, I'm prisoner 64421. Um, and he has this little song, Who Am I? And he, he talks about, like, do I, do I stay where it's safe and be damned by God? Or do I go and trust that God is going to make everything okay? And he finally decides, I've already made this choice long before this. And he goes over there and he has this thing. Where he's, like, he's like, who am I, prisoner for? Or whatever that, that number was. That's our question we have to constantly ask ourselves. Who are we? Who are we? You forget yourself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know why you are not living the abundant life that God has called you to? Why you deal with so much strife and pain that it was not meant for you? It's mainly because of our, our main problem arises from this. We forget who we are. Who are you? When you are asked this question, we respond with our name, but as Juliet, in Ju- Romeo and Juliet said, what is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. We then go on to our occupation. I'm a pastor, clerk, counselor. We fill in the blank with what gets us money. But Jonah's shipmates ask him all the above. And he finally remembers who he is. Jonah has this great response. It's so good. And it terrifies the sailors. He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He says he is a Hebrew, as in God's special people, chosen from among the, from the nations to bless the nations. What is his occupation? He says, I fear the Lord. In some translations, I worship. That's your occupation, dear friend. You worship. You know, I've kind of beat around the bush, but that is the heart of it. You worship God. That is your occupation. That is your sole goal in life, to worship, to be a living sacrifice. That answer tells us, tells everyone everything they need to know about us. What do I do? I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. He is the God of heaven. He is above all other gods. There is no other God, for he is the one who made the sea and the dry land. This is what, this is what they were wondering. Who offended the God of the sea? But this guy offended more than the God of the sea, but of the dry land and of the heavens themselves. What is your answer when you are asked who you are? What do you do? When I was in high school, I used to do this thing every morning before I'd go to school, because every day I'd go to school, I knew this. I was going into a battle zone, and I needed to be ready. And I'll still do this every now and again if I'm feeling low. Um, I'll look in the mirror, and I'll say, who am I? And I'd say, I am the son of the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I am the wretch the song refers to. There is nothing in me that would add anything to him, but in in my weakness, in my depravity, Christ chose to die for me. So therefore, my acceptance isn't based on on my performance. It's based on whose I am. So who am I? I am Jason Michael Fisher. That's just a title, but I am the son of a living, I am the adopted son of the living God. And there is nothing that God has called me to do that I can't do. And if somebody wants to hurt me, they're not hurting me, they're hurting him. Or some variation of that. 
You would think saying this would make my, my self-esteem go low as I talk about what a wretched, vile sinner I am. It's the exact opposite because I'm not trusting in myself for my own self-esteem. I'm trusting in God for my self-esteem. If it's on me, then it fluctuates. I do something stupid, well, then I'm like, oh. But if it's on the throne room of God, it calls me to something higher than what I am. They, 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 they seem to ask him, but it's more of a statement um, in, the next, in the next portion here. They ask him, what have you done? Now, that's a statement that we never wanted to hear from our parents, right? What have you done? They hear a big crash. It's not so much a question as in, I just wanted to have a nap today and you had to break something. Now I got to punish you. <laughs> they ask him, what have you done? They, know, they knew that he was running from his Lord. It was a statement because they already knew he was running from his God. He should have read Psalm 139 because there is no place to run. There is no place to hide. Not in the depths of the sea. Not in the very bosom of death itself. So finally, his, the last question here. It's not a question they ask directly, but they ask him who his people are. What that means is really is who do you belong to? Who, who are your people? Israel is God's possession. The people of Israel, including Jonah, were not their own. Something they had not, something they have forgotten many times. But in 2 Samuel 7, verses 23 and 24, it makes this clear that they are not their own. They are God's special possession among the nations. Jonah could have, flew, could have tried to flee to America, but God would have been waiting with an with a armful of corn when he got here. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that we were bought with a price. We are not our own. You know, that's primarily talking about sexual immorality. I think that's important because so many people give away what's so precious, that God has given us so precious, so flippantly. And it's not because of pregnancy or STDs and all these things. It's because you were bought with a price. You have been made precious. So honor God with your body. Honor God with who you are. Because you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You know how much this grinds against our modern day ideologies that you are not your own? That is so hateful in so many people's book. In fact, there was this gal on Twitter, I remember, saying, don't believe anybody who says that you are not your own, including the Apostle Paul. And it was like, you know, I'm sorry, lady, it wasn't the Apostle Paul. It was the Holy Spirit himself speaking through Paul. And I understand why you don't like that, because you are not a sheep and you don't hear the master's voice. But he realized he was not his own. He was part of a people that God had taken out of this world to bless this world, the people of Israel. He was a Hebrew, so that meant he didn't belong to himself. He belonged to his God. He paid the, he paid the bill. We, we serve a God. Um, let me re- go back here. Because we sell ourselves, this is good, because we sell ourselves into slavery constantly. We need a redeemer to buy us out. That's where God came, comes in. He paid the bill with his son's life's blood. You are not your own. We have times of rebellion like Jonah where we try to sail to Tarshish, but that just means we've forgotten who we are and whose we are. How we forget who we belong to. Once again, the immediate context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is sexual immorality. We often think the whole of taking the Lord's name in vain is saying his name as a curse word, but taking his name in vain is much different than that as well. It's that we will try to say that, 
okay, God wants this in my life, or I want this in my life, and I'm going to take God in on that to give me validity. This is a problem we have often in churches, because we'll want our own way, and we'll say, God told me we shouldn't do that. That's a false prophecy. I mean, that, that, is, that is witchcraft right there. We try to, that is blasphemy, because we are taking God onto something that God is not a part of. When we see people say, well, it says in the Bible that God is love, therefore any expression of love is God, that is blasphemy. Because instead of going to God and asking, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. Um, when we go to him and we say, this is love, and because you say you are love, you have to be good with what we, our perverted sense of love, that is blasphemy. We've forgotten whose we are. The reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is revealed to us in chapter 3, but here's a spoiler. He hates these people, and he wants to see them destroyed, and he doesn't need to go there for them to be destroyed. He knows this. He's so worried that even a, 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 a gospel of condemnation might turn their hearts. He worries that even though, a pro, even though the prophecy um, that they were all going to die with no hope, that there was still a chance they may, might repent and God would change his mind on this because they would have changed. When someone says telling others they are going to hell is hateful and telling them that God loves them without any context is loving, they have the attitude of Jonah. And that really what it comes down to, are people really going to hell without Christ? If people are really going to hell without Christ, not telling them that is not loving. It'd be more loving for you to go around the streets telling people you're going to hell than for you to tell people, well, God just loves you. Well, Tony Robbins loves you too. And what, what, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Other than God knows who you are, all the bad and all the good, and he still decided to die for you. That you have a debt towards God in our sin. And that debt deserves hell everlasting. But God, who loves us, gave his son for us. Jonah doesn't want to give the message and he flees. He wants to go all the way to Tarsus because he hates these people, not because he loves them. That's the solution. That's the contrast. In verses 11 through 14, Noah has an idea to just throw himself overboard. I don't know where he came up with this idea. Pastor John MacArthur wonders if this was Noah trying to run away again, this time to death. But once again, Psalm 139 says that even in Sheol, even in the place of the dead, that's where God is. Noah will pray twice later that to let, to, for God to let him die. In the next several verses, we have the contrasting between the prophet and the pagans. They resist, they resist the idea of throwing him overboard. They try to pull themselves back, and this doesn't work. Doesn't work. And I understand that. I remember one time being on a very small pond in a paddle boat when there was a storm, and it was terrifying because I, couldn't, I, I just couldn't get back to shore. They know it's helpless, but they're like, we don't want to be responsible for an innocent man's death. Meanwhile, the prophet's like, just throw me overboard. He isn't given a prophecy that there's going to be a, a fish that will swallow him. He just thinks this will appease God. And it doesn't because God is like, you're going to Nineveh, no matter what's happening here. So these people, they, they, try, to, they try to paddle back to shore. They can't get to shore, so they throw him overboard. You know what's amazing that happens in this story? A bunch of godless heathens become believers in the Lord God of Israel. 
because of what happens here. It's fear after the storm. The writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, was a pagan on a boat in the middle of a storm. He had an interesting life. Um, For a period in his life, he was actually a slave. He was captured and spent a period of his life as a slave. Now, much different than the slavery he conducted because it wasn't lifelong. He was purchased out of slavery by his family. What I want to say is that he understood what slavery was. He wasn't ignorant of it. So for John Noon to become a slaver, uh, captain of a slave ship, that's significant. And all of a sudden, there's this huge storm. In the middle of the storm, he, he asked God to save him. If God would save him, he would commit his life to him. And God saves him in, after this storm. And, but it wouldn't be till much later till he truly understood the depravity of what he was doing. And it was out of all of this, he writes the word, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And that is the song of every true believer because we realize where the wretch the song refers to. I remember I used to say this. We, in our last church, we had a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. It was very much like a 12-step program. If you've ever done a 12-step program, you go in there and you're like, my name is Jason, and you'd say, and you'll say, like, I'm an alcoholic or whatever. In this one, you'd say, I'm Jason. You'd say what you are. Um, instead of saying what you were struggling with, you would kind of say something positive, like, I'm, I'm a... Uh, I'm a son of the living God or something like that. And I would always say, I'm, I'm uh, Pastor Jason, and I'm the, I'm the wretch the song refers to. And um, I remember there was somebody there that was like, there's no way that was written long before you were born. I was like, I know, and it's about me. <laughs> Jonah, at this point in his life, he's not quite there yet. I do believe he gets there. What happens with these people, they do see themselves as the wretch the song refers to. In verses 15 and 16, the sailors have a fear of the Lord after the storm. Normally, the fear of the Lord is in the storm. And then after the storm gets, um, passes by, we're like, well, that was something. Well, I'm glad I got through that. And we forget all those oaths we made about, you know, we were going to sell our car and give the money to missions or whatever. If, if just, you know, the tornado didn't hit our house. These people, they remember it and they actually sacrifice to the Lord after it's done. And I believe we will see these men in heaven one day. Worship team, would you come up? Jonah is a challenging book because it asks, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we running? Or what are we running from? Is there something of obedience in the scriptures that I don't want to deal with right now because I would rather live the way I want to live? If there is, stop running. It will only make things harder. The great surgeon of our souls is on call and wants us to come in because there's something he needs to do. There's something he needs to take out. There's something he needs to heal. Stop running, dear friend. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what you do, who you are, and whose you are? Are you trusting in other people and other things in life to give you your sense of completion, your sense of accomplishment, your sense of um, your sense of worth? They will never give you that because they weren't meant to do that. Only the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who took his own son up to a hill to be sacrificed and then raised him from the dead on the third day. He is the one who can give us that what we truly desire, for he is the one whose we are. He is the one who says who we are, and he is the one who tells us what to do. Here's my challenge for you this week. It's going to be like a legitimate 
thing for you to do and not just to contemplate. I want you to tell one person you've never told before about your testimony, about what God has done in your life. We got that, everybody? People are watching at home? Giving you a bit of homework this week? One person you've never talked to about Jesus Christ, I want you to give your testimony at the very least, if not the gospel of Jesus Christ in its entirety. I don't, I don't try to do this normally, but sometimes I like to talk about people in the congregation from the lectern. And I know like Larry does this wonderfully. He'll be like in line at a supermarket and the person behind him who has to wait for all of his groceries to go through, it's like, this is an opportunity to talk about the gospel. There's so many opportunities. We are awash in opportunities to share the gospel. Students, you're constantly washed in opportunities. You just have to be aware of it. I remember one time doing a book study and I had to do a speech afterwards. So I did it on Left Behind. And there might have been something about left behind in my speech, but it was the gospel. I talked about sin, and I talked about how we're all sinners before the Lord, and that we need, we need somebody to be our mediator, our sacrifice for us, and that was Jesus Christ. And that if you'd believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and repent, you'd have eternal life. This was in public high school, and there's nothing my teacher could do about it. He's the one who made the assignment. One person, one person this week, you've never told anything about Jesus before. Do that this week. Second, pray to the Lord of the harvest. This is one of the things Jesus said. The fields are right, are white. They are ready for harvest. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. See, our problem, we, we live with so much guilt when it comes to this area about witnessing, is that we don't go out and harvest and then because of that, we feel so guilty about it, we don't pray for others to go out into the harvest. So nobody's praying for people to go out into the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest this week that he would send workers in his vineyard. And of course, that means you too, that he'd send you into your very everyday life to the people you know that you know that don't know the Lord. Pray for these people. Pray that you'd get the heart of the Father for these people. Now, one thing I want to make very clear, though, it's not on you to save them. This is probably part of the reason why people don't want to witness at all because of the fear of rejection. It's not on you to save them. When we get to chapter 3 and 4, you know what Noah's great message was that, that had revival in a city of 120,000? You're going to die. And it wasn't that. He said, in so many days, the city will be overturned. Everyone took that to mean we're all going to die. That was his great evangelistic, you know, you know you, if you brought that into any like personal evangelism class, people would be like, don't do that. Whole city has revival and he does that because it's not on you to get people to make the message in such a way to where somebody can accept it. It's just for you to tell them the message of Jesus Christ as I have declared to you today and it's up to you to accept it. William Wilberforce, who was a disciple of John Newton, was instrumental in destroying the slave trade in Europe. In fact, he, he brought his bill before the parliament every year, and it was, a finally, it was finally voted on and finally passed, abolishing the slave trade. One of the things he would do is he would take the wealthiest people he knew on a, on a, on a luxury boat, boat ride, and one of, one of the things that they would do is that they would pass in front of one of these slave ships, and the rotting stench of what they were doing to other human beings would be in their noses. And he'd tell them, breathe this in. You can never say again you didn't know. You can just say you don't care. That is for you today. I'm not putting condemnation on for you, but you can't say you don't know. You can only say you don't care. And I don't believe that of any, of any person I've ever talked to. I believe that 
out of love and, and out of the Holy Spirit's prompting, we will be great witnesses for, for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the world, ends of the earth. Would you please join us in our final song? This morning when I turned back initially, I was like, wow, there's almost more people back here than in front of me. It's pretty cool. I love that our kids are going to be, our youth are going to be leading us in worship today.